In the year 1977, everything would change for a seemingly wholesome and popular Girl Scout camp in Oklahoma. The creepy and worrisome events started in April 1977 during an on-site cadet weekend prior to the summer kicking off. So this was basically just for camp counselors and staff to have a training weekend before thousands of girls came to the camp for the summer. One camp aide found her tent completely ransacked with a donut box emptied. But she found something even creepier, pieces of notebook paper. These pages read the word kill written all over them. And then a single page was found with the phrase, we're on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Upon taking the note to the camp director and the situation being looked into, it was reported to just be a prank, but they were horribly wrong. June 13, 1977 would amount to one of the most hideous crimes in the history of Oklahoma. At around 6 a.m., a camp counselor discovered a horrifying scene. She came across a sleeping bag with a child's body inside on her way to the showers. Shortly after, it was discovered that three girls from Tent 8 had been brutally murdered, bludgeoned, strangled, and assaulted. The discovery would shake the state to its core and leave the families of these three little girls devastated. As we further discuss, I want to give another warning to the graphic nature of this case, as it involves child violence and assault. If you believe that this is something you wish to skip out on, please feel free to join us for another episode. Welcome to An Easy, a podcast hosted by Lexi and Cecilia. This podcast is a collection of research based on haunting and mysterious events that will leave you feeling genuinely uneasy. Discretion is advised. Camp Scott first opened in 1928 in Mays County, Oklahoma. This camp was roughly 400 acres and included activities for the girls such as swimming, CPR training, animal life study, archery, and leadership skills, just to name a few. So it was really like the picture-perfect girls' summer camp that you think of. Um, Think Parent Trap. It was very much like had a lot of activities to do. It was where everybody wanted to go. And the average age range for this camp was ages 8 to 11. In 1957 alone, this camp had over 4,000 girls attend. So it was very, very popular. For a lot of girls, this was the first time that they were staying away from home. And they would be staying for two weeks. And this is a really young age. I would have been scared to death to leave my mom at eight years old to go to a sleepaway camp for two weeks. In 1977, camp took place in June and parents would drop off their children at headquarters and then campers would be bussed out to their campsites to enjoy all of the amenities and just start camp. Um, And once they arrived, they would split the girls into groups based on the cabins that they were staying in. And there was typically about four girls per tent. The girls were allowed to pick their own tent mates, but not everyone always had come into camp knowing other friends or coming there with a friend from school. Um, And this story follows three young girls who did just that. They came to camp by themselves and they found themselves paired together in a cabin. These girls' names were Lori Farmer, eight years old, Denise Milner, who was 10 years old, and Michelle Gousset, who was nine years old. 
Like I said, these three girls were paired together at the Kiowa campsite and placed in tent eight as they decided to be tent mates when they realized that they didn't know anybody else at camp. Aww. I know, it makes me really sad. The way that the tents were set up was one that I am so confused about. So the counselors were in tent one and the girls were then separated out in tents from numbers two to eight. And when I say tents, they were kind of on these platforms with steps walking up to them. So when I see pictures of it, I think of kind of a yurt slash tent style. They've also been called cabins as well. And I use it kind of interchangeably throughout this episode. Um, But they were not necessarily like tents that you think of tent camping today. But again, they weren't cabins with like wooden walls either. They are arranged in a semicircle of sorts, and the eighth tent was the furthest away from everybody else and was completely out of sight from the counselor's tent. And there was kind of a storage slash shower building that blocked direct line of sight because of the semicircle nature of the tents. So it kind of went tent one where the counselors were, they weren't able to see all of these little girls that were staying with them in the middle of the woods because they separated out all of the girls at this camp into these kind of pods of semicircles with two counselors and then all of these girls spread out in tents two through eight. So in my mind, that's not a great system for young girls. No, no, not at all. I feel like either if the tent, if the leaders are all going to be in one tent then it should be a semicircle from two through eight and then tent one in the very center facing right. and other people have suggested that too that have covered this case and they've had the same reactions of us being like what the heck or normally there's just one counselor per cabin right there in my mind there should be one counselor per tent i don't know if there just wasn't enough counselors to do that if they were having a greater demand for campers to come than they were for staff Um, but it just seems really negligent to me um, in terms of overall safety because the camp also wasn't closed in by any means it's not like it was a fenced in area it was 400 acres so it was easily accessible to the woods I mean there's animals and You don't want to think that somebody could be lurking out there in the woods, but you never know. And when you're, you know, in charge of these little girls' lives, that's something that I think you should think about. I feel like you have to have massive insurance to have that kind of setup. Massive insurance. Lori Lee Farmer was the youngest camper in the camp, and it was actually her ninth birthday coming up in about a week. She was from Tulsa, and she was described to be very adventurous and smart and very mature for her age. She even skipped the second grade and was evaluated to have an IQ of 130. Okay, queen. (laughs) I know. She was incredibly smart for her age. She was a beautiful young girl, and she begged her mom to allow her to go to sleepaway camp despite how young she was. But she was actually interested in two camps, Camp Scott and then a YMCA camp. But she didn't really have a preference on when she where she went. So it was ultimately her mother's decision on what camp she was going to and what week. And 
her mom has stated multiple times that this will haunt her for the rest of her life because she made the decision to send her daughter to camp that week and to go to Camp Scott. That's so sad because it's never the mother's fault, of course. Like, the mother obviously had no clue that what was going to happen. And the sad thing is, though, if it wasn't Lori Farmer, then it, it would have been someone else. Be person exactly so yeah exactly there was two other girls in the tent with Lori one being Denise Milner she was described as getting really homesick and she didn't even really like sleepovers she was the one girl who would like call her mom right before bed to come (laughs) get her at sleepovers Um, and her mom was actually pretty shocked when she asked to even be going and basically Denise was like every other girl my age is going so I need to go and so you know she was committed and right before camp the day before she actually begged not to go and her mom makes her being like no this is like a teaching moment you need to follow through with your commitments and she made her a deal that if after one night she hated it then she could tell her mom and her mom would come and get her the final girl that was in the tent with Denise and Lori was Michelle Gousset. She was described as being shy and athletic and had a really big love for plants. I think she actually asked her mom to take care of her plants for her while she was away at camp. And she um, had actually attended the camp a year prior. So she was kind of like a little veteran at Camp Scott, um, which I'm sure that Denise and Lori appreciated having her in the tent with them to kind of show them the ropes. Like, here's where the bathroom is. Here's where like we eat dinner, those kind of things, since they didn't know anybody getting there. The girls were spending the night getting to know each other, and they had dinner together, and then it starts pouring down rain, like a terrible, terrible storm. So all of the camp staff had the campers go back to their tents, and they, the three girls decided to go to the bathroom together, and they noticed flashlights in the woods, and they screamed like little girls do, just thinking, oh, somebody's like, playing a little trick on us like trying to scare us and they ran back to their tents and the counselors were like okay girls like why don't you write letters home like it's the end of the night after your first day why don't you write some letters to your parents these are some examples of what the girls wrote in their letters Lori said we're just getting ready for bed at 7 45 i couldn't wait to write we're all writing letters now because there's nothing else to do In Denise's letter, part of it said, I don't like camp. It's awful. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. So she's begging her mom, like, hey, you promised me you'd come get me. And in this letter, she's begging her mom to come pick her up. And then Michelle's letter was pretty mature for her age. She said, dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I'm writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tentmates are in the last tent in our unit. My tentmates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. What happens next would be the worst nightmare that you could even imagine. It was reported that one of the counselors saw a dim light in the woods out by the trees surrounding the camp. The counselor knew that no one should have been there, so she decides to shine a flashlight out into the trees just to see if she could see anything, and as soon as she did, the light went away. And she waited for a little while, and then she saw the light turn back on and travel northwest towards the Kiowa campsite 
where Lori, Michelle, and Denise were staying. Another counselor that same night woke up to a very loud and strange noise, and it was described as something that she had never heard before. It was kind of like a moaning, like weird sound. It didn't sound like an animal, but it didn't sound like a human. And she grabs her flashlight and leaves her tent. And as soon as she does, the sound just stops. And so she was like, that was really weird. I don't know what that was. And keep in mind, camp counselors aren't always adults. Like they might be teenage girls that are doing this for the summer. So she probably honestly like, just thought it was somebody, like I said, playing a trick on her and just goes back to bed. The same night, another group of girls in tent six stated that they saw a person with a flashlight approach their tent but never enter. At that time, they thought that it was just a counselor. The next morning, the same counselor who heard strange noises the night before woke up early to head to the showers. Out of the corner of her eye, she spots a sleeping bag off the trail to the shower, and she initially thought that it was just some kind of super weird coincidence, like somebody had forgotten to take in their sleeping bag in and just thought it was a really weird place to leave it. And as she moved closer to investigate, she found out that the sleeping bag was full of a small body, and she immediately knew that somebody was dead and freaked out, obviously. She runs to tell other camp counselors and directors, and this is when they notice that there are two other girls missing from the same cabin. They begin to search the area and find two more sleeping bags. Both were holding two more small bodies individually. Police noted that it was so small that it was hard to believe that it was even a body, and the three girls were all pronounced dead at the scene. So their bodies were in their respective sleeping bags but they were pulled to random locations and yes they were still close to their original campsite but they weren't all necessarily lined up together but they were in the vicinity of where the shower cabin was and like i said in the beginning the shower cabin kind of sat in line of sight between tent one and tent eight in that semicircle so it's all kind of in the same vicinity um so it's not like they were really far away from where everybody else was but someone still like dragged them out yes they still were taken from their tent as police continued to investigate the crime scene they found gruesome details that made this crime even worse than just three little girls being dead it was clear to the police that someone had entered through the back of the tent and then struck the children and it was determined that Michelle and Lori were killed inside of the tent. It was then determined that Denise was drugged and or carried from the tent and into the woods. It was also found that tape and rope were used as well as gags on all three girls. After they were killed, the killer moved their bodies into the sleeping bags away from the tent. It was also determined that Denise was the last to die as her body was still warm when they found her. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The tent was attempted to be cleaned up by the killer, which is really strange considering that he didn't even attempt to hide the bodies. That's so strange. He even dragged the bodies, I feel, into more plain sight, like outside of a tent, when he didn't even have to, if they two of them were even murdered in the tent. So then why are you going to 
clean the crime scene after doing like yeah and he it's he didn't bring stuff to clean with him he was just grabbing whatever was laying around in the tent and just ended up smearing blood around it sounds like he wasn't really effectively cleaning yeah he wasn't even really effectively cleaning and unfortunately all three girls showed signs of being assaulted um including mutilation beating and strangulation oh no so as i assume that's what the counselor heard when she woke up possibly um but hold on to the sounds that she hears as we go on into the story because it'll make a connection later on as well okay Employees were literally scrambling, trying to control the rest of the camp, because keep in mind that they still had a lot of unharmed little girls that were just expecting for summer camp to go on as normal. And so they were trying to figure out what to do. And so apparently the camp told the campers that there was something wrong with water, like the running water at the camp. And... They didn't really disclose to the campers what was really going on. And so they told them that camp had to be canceled. How do you also tell such young girls that, oh, three of the other campers, just like you, were gruesomely mutilated? Yeah, I respect I respect them on that level for actually not telling them because I don't think that that's something I think that's a parent's job, honestly. Because that gets into the definition of death, and I feel like that's a parent's situation over a, a random camp counselor. Like that's not just your grandparent dying of old age. Like that's, that's yeah, a whole different. It's someone type your of age, too. yeah, yeah, and someone your age hits you differently, even when you're like older into your teens as well. So I respect the camp on that level for not telling the little girls. The parents, however, knew that something bad had happened based on the news, but they had very, very little information. Um, And essentially, every parent came to headquarters of the camp and waited for their children to get off the bus. And they had no idea what was happening because none of the parents of the victims were the first calls from the camp. The camp called their insurance and lawyers before calling the little girl's parents who had died. While that's not the sympathetic thing to do, I think it's like um, a panic situation. And like, what in the world? Like asking the lawyers, like, what in the world do I do? What do I say? Trying, but at the same time, like trying not to, to make sure that you don't get sued. So it's very much like, unsympathetic but also i do understand in a very like stressful sense yeah and when they did end up calling them they didn't tell them like anything really they were like hey the girls have been in an accident we need you to come to the camp so they didn't know until they got there that something horrible had happened when you know the entire camp is flooded with police and their daughters are already not getting off the deceased yeah During the investigation, the autopsies revealed that excessive force was used. However, the girls' faces were unharmed, which I thought was a very intriguing detail to include. Investigators had little to nothing to go on to find the perpetrator, 
And at the scene of the crime, they found rope, duct tape, a flashlight, and a crowbar all near the bodies. So this guy or girl at the point at this point in time was really not trying to hide anything. He didn't try to hide the bodies or any of the things that he brought with them. They also found that tent eight was not the only tent that the perpetrator had gone into. Some of the eyeglasses from other tents were missing, but would show up in random places around the campsite. And this aspect is so weird because it makes me wonder, was he just stealing eyeglasses from these little girls, like trying them on and then not liking them and then placing them down wherever he was? Are they trophies? It was, it's so strange. And I've never heard of another serial killer being so interested in eyeglasses or a killer in general. I'd be pissed if someone stole my glasses. Yeah, it was just so strange. The rope that was found was linked to a nearby farmhouse, but the farmer insisted that he had been robbed and he actually passed a lie detector test saying like, look, I was robbed. I have nothing to do with this. And the media was just so wild in this case because it was so horrific that people were desperate to blame it on anyone. And the fact that he took a polygraph allowed for the media to try and pin him as guilty because they don't have an inside scoop with police so the fact that they even found out that he was taking a polygraph makes him look like he's a top suspect which we even see that kind of media blaming today oh 100% they're trying the media is trying to make money and they're also trying to and they want answers right away Yes, they want answers right away, no matter the truth behind it sometimes. And they're also trying to please their readers. And their readers were calling for like literally just anybody's head on the stake at this point because it was three young girls. And when it has to do with children, people don't mess around. They were mad. Um, Unfortunately, this farmer who was, was not guilty was actually hospitalized in the wake of all of these calls and comments that he was getting after the newspapers blamed him. He was basically it made him like so sick. That's really sad. Police were desperate to find the perpetrator and even brought in the help of Native Americans to perform traditional rituals to help kind of lead them in their search. Police eventually tried to make the connection to a Native American man named Gene Hart. He had escaped from prison in 1973, and he was still not found. Gene Hart has a rap sheet of his own. Gene actually kidnapped two pregnant women in 1966 and forced them into his car and proceeded to tie them up and assault them. And one of the victims had made comments that during this whole ordeal, Gene had really weird sounds going on. Like, while she was being Mm. assaulted by Gene when she was pregnant, he was making these really weird, like, moaning sounds that she had no idea what it was because it didn't sound like an animal and it didn't sound like a human. And this is where I'm saying, hold on to that sound bit. Yeah. At first, I thought it was just, like, a racist thing. 
But now I feel like there's actually like credibility right. behind it. So police actually wondered the same thing and were thinking that these weird noises could maybe be connected to the same noises that the counselors had heard when they woke up the night of the murders. But there also was that underlying aspect of race in this case as well, just due to the fact that it was in the 70s. Um, So that's another aspect just to kind of keep in mind. As they are starting to think that Gene could be their guy, a cave was discovered that overlooked Camp Scott. And it appeared that someone had been living there for a good while. Inside the cave, they found women's underwear and tape along with plastic materials and women's glasses and a crumpled up picture of a woman. There's those glasses again. Yeah, so there's the glasses. And in addition, there was also crumpled up newspaper in the cave. Now, this was a really big deal because the flashlight found at Camp Scott next to the bodies had a piece of newspaper crumpled inside to hold the battery in place. And police were able to piece together that the newspaper in the cave and the newspaper within the flashlight were from the same edition. That's some Nancy Drew stuff. Right? That just sounds straight out of a like novel. And when I was researching that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's insane. Yeah. In addition, one of the glasses found in the cave was actually a pair that was missing from camp that was taken the night of the murders. So they knew that the person living in the cave was the one who had murdered the three little girls, but they still needed to connect it to Jean slash figure out who it was that was living in the cave if it wasn't Jean. They placed an ad in national newspapers trying to find the woman that they found a picture of in the cave. They found out that the picture had been taken by a local wedding photographer who had gotten help from a man in prison to develop them. And that man was Gene Hart. So wait, why did the photographer need help from Gene in prison to develop their photos? I'm not really sure. I I just kind of took that as it was, to be honest. I didn't know if this like, was... Like, outsourcing to the cheapest person? Yeah, I don't know if it was because he knew how to do it or maybe she had known him previously before he was in prison. But all I know is that he apparently helped to develop the the pictures and that's how he got his hand on, so on the wedding pictures. This incites a national manhunt for Gene, and when they capture him, oddly enough, he's wearing women's glasses. This man yeah. <laughs> is obsessed. Yeah, he was he was weirdly obsessed with glasses. You know how the Rarity Club does like donation bins for glasses at like grocery stores? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Yeah. He would have a field day. Oh yeah, he would <laughs> love it. He would love it. When he was captured and participating in police interviews, he told police that they would never be able to pin the crime on him. And this statement incited the police to dive deeper into their investigation on him because it sounded like he was admitting his guilt, being like, you're never going to be able to pin this on me. It almost sounded cocky to the police. When Gene went to trial for this, it was a complete mess. 
there was so many people who actually thought that he was framed by the police despite all of the evidence that makes him look guilty. And they think that it was placed there by the police. So they think that everything that was in the cave was placed by police. They think that this was just a massive race and culture storm incited by the police just to solve this horrible murder so that the state could move on and grieve i understand that i think that like hearing you know there's no solid evidence like it's all circumstantial and then it's all found in a cave and this and that like especially in the 70s when there's so many like racist people out there and there's like a lot of tension i think it and everyone obviously wants this case to be solved right away. There is like an understanding that it that could possibly happen, but it's the glasses for me. Yeah. Now I will say the defense had some good points during this trial. They said that the DNA found on the little girls that pointed to them being assaulted could not physically link to Gene because he had had a vasectomy. So they're like, it it can't be him because of the DNA that you found. Mm. Which is a pretty solid point. The defense also says that they were framing Gene because someone who worked at the jail testified that he saw the photos that were linked to Gene and that they found in the cave in the sheriff's desk prior to them ever being found in the cave. So this jail's person is being like, no, I, I saw those photos in the sheriff's desk. But there could be more copies. Exactly. Which is kind of why I feel iffy about that point from the defense. Um, in addition, there was fingerprints and footprints um, that they do not think were genes based on the size um, at the scene of the crime and within the cave and things like that. So that was kind of where the defense was coming from. At the end of the day, the jury finds him not guilty of the crimes, despite all of the evidence. And he's sent back to jail, but for his original crimes of assaulting those two pregnant women and then escaping from jail. And he ended up dying in prison. And after doing an autopsy, they find out that the vasectomy never took. Hmm. So the DNA found could have been his. Right. It was like the biggest point from the defense. And in fact, his vasectomy never took. So the DNA that was found on those three poor little girls could have been his. In 2022, it was announced that DNA testing in the case, although officially inconclusive, strongly suggests Hart's involvement in the crime. The case remains officially unsolved. Next week on Uneasy, we'll be discussing Dean Carroll. Dean murdered almost 30 young boys in the 70s. He is a murderer that calls parents to warn their kids to avoid men in white vans who try offering you candy. Tune into Uneasy wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to find out how Dean lured his victims for years without getting caught.